Good evening and welcome to Corbett Report Radio, friends. You are tuned into to Corbett Report Radio here on republicbroadcasting.org, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And if you've been listening to this broadcast for any length of time, you'll know that we have been keeping our eye on a number of developments around the world as geopolitics just continues to get crazier and crazier seemingly by the day. And we have uh, fresh off the news wires stories such as fresh surge in violence in Syria despite international efforts, fragile ceasefire from CNN with the big asterisks that, of course, these uh, this fresh surge in violence is based on reports by people who are not in the country. Uh, we have uh, Reuters, Myanmar's power struggle endangers economic boom. We have uh, from the Express Tribune with the International Herald Tribune, Balochistan unrest, three more missing persons recovered. Uh, just so much going on all around the world. That's why it's always my pleasure to bring up a new and interesting guest for you to uh, share his insights and his research into these many areas. And tonight's uh, conversation is going to be no exception as we talk to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. And for those of you who have not visited StopImperialism.com, may I heartily suggest that you do so and subscribe to the podcast that Eric has there. A very, very in-depth, useful resource. I'm very glad one of the listeners out there sent in a suggestion for me to check check out Stop Imperialism. And uh, since I've done so, I have become a regular listener of the podcast because I think it's safe to say that you will never find a more jam-packed podcast than Stop Imperialism with tons of geopolitical information and really in-depth stories and research. So my hat's off to Eric for creating this great resource, and I believe he is on the line. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, James. It's a real pleasure. Well, uh, this is probably the first time a lot of people are hearing you and uh, hearing about StopImperialism.com, so why don't you just tell us briefly about yourself and how you started the website? Absolutely. I'm, uh, I live in New York City. I, um, I'm originally from California. I have a bachelor's degree in art history, a uh, master's degree in creative writing, and a master's degree in education. I'm a teacher in New York City. Um, also uh, active politically with Occupy Wall Street, as well as with a variety of other movements. Um, I put together Stop Imperialism.com right after the beginning of Occupy Wall Street when it became clear that um, Occupy was never going to be what it needed to be in the sense that it was never going to be uh, an organizing tool. It was never going to be something that was based on principles and demands, but rather it was sort of an affinity group. So I decided that I would take my uh, my time and my knowledge and I would put that into putting together a show that I could put out there and um, hope. Hopefully the show would then be used as a mobilization tool as well as an educational resource, and I'm glad to hear that that's how it's being used. Well, it, it certainly is, and once again, for people who haven't uh, checked into it, I'm sure that they will be pleasantly surprised when they do so, because once again, as I say, it's just a jam-packed uh, transmission, and you've got so many different things going on uh, every week. I'm sure people will get a lot out of it, no matter what they're into. But uh, but on that note of Occupy Wall Street, I note there's a video of, I believe it's yourself online, called Being a Revolutionary, uh, documenting some of your conversations at Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, I actually um, I got connected with a filmmaker through a mutual friend and uh she was interested in putting 
together a five-minute character film, but she didn't want to do the, the, the standard boilerplate Occupy Wall Street movie, of which there were probably dozens being made at any given time. Um, instead, she wanted to sort of document someone who was not necessarily in keeping with the group, that is to say, someone who was going against the, going against the flow of Occupy and trying to infuse it with some sort of a programmatic substance to it, and that was what I was doing, and so... So if you go on YouTube or right on to StopImperialism.com, you can see the video. It's called Being a Revolutionary. Absolutely, and I do suggest that people check that out as well to get a better idea of uh, who you are and where you're coming from. But on that note, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll get straight into the news and the headlines from around the world as we go in search of the uh, geopolitical crises that are making headlines right now. So on that note, let's take a short break. We'll be right back with Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. Friends, welcome back to the program. You are listening to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. Once again, I think it's a, a great resource on so many different things taking place around the world at the moment. And of course, uh, foremost on many people's minds right now is the Syria situation, which continues to threaten to devolve into some sort of Libyan-like or operation to drop humanitarian love bombs on the uh, the people of Syria as the, I guess, the dominant narrative goes. And Eric, let's start getting into the very latest on Syria. Obviously, the discussion at the moment is being dominated by the recent UN-brokered uh, Anon peace deal, quote-unquote, which is looking more and more like the setup that I think we all kind of suspected it was going to be, which is basically just an excuse for the international community, quote-unquote, by which, of course, we mean U.S. imperialist powers to uh, to use any violence that occurs now, or even reports of violence, to basically blame on Assad and say, look, he broke the peace deal, so therefore we can do what we want with him. That's at least my take on what this uh, this entire peace deal process is really amounted to, but I'd be interested to hear your take. Well, I um, I would agree with that, certainly. I think what's interesting about this particular subject is the role of Russia and China, because uh, I think to uh, maybe your average observers, they think, well, Russia and China, they've been protecting Assad. They're on the side of Assad. It's not quite so clear. In fact, Russia and China endorsed the U.N. resolution this past week uh, regarding the implementation of the Kofi Annan deal. Uh, the issue, though, is, and you can actually go online and see the video of uh, Russian Ambassador Cherkin saying this at the United Nations, that... Uh, that the Kofi Annan plan, Russia's position is that the plan and the peace treaty and the ceasefire must be implemented equally on all sides. And that's something that is, that is uh, markedly absent from the narrative you get from the United States and from the West. What they do is they say, and Ban Ki-moon said it himself, that the onus is always on the Assad regime rather than on the Assad regime and the opposition simultaneously. So really the center of the conflict right now has to do with which side uh, the Russians and the Chinese are taking. Uh, what's interesting about that, though, is the headline that came out a couple of days ago that the Russians have now sent warships 
off the coast of Syria. We saw this back in January, but now this seems to be heating up. And I think this is the most crucial piece of information for people to take away right now because it seems that Putin is sending the Russian uh, naval fleet off the coast of Syria specifically to prevent what you mentioned, and that is the Libya scenario. In other words, to prevent U.S. and NATO naval blockade of Syria the way they had blockaded Libya and essentially starved out the country. Well, that's right. And in fact, that's that's really the conclusion I come to in my latest article for the International Forecaster, which I'm writing every Saturday for those out there who haven't uh, who haven't looked at that yet. That's the International Forecaster dot com. And in the latest article, I was basically saying that I don't think this is going to turn into a Libyan bombing campaign or, or anything of that sort because of Russia obviously having such close ties to to Syria. And really, I think they would have way too much uh, face to lose if if it really turned into that type, type of scenario. But I certainly do see the strategy, the tack that's be, being taken with the so-called Friends of Syria and the outright open arming and funding of the uh, the so-called rebels is, is I think, likely the long-term strategy here for the, uh, the imperialist powers. They just want to make sure they have their proxy army. And as long as they can keep putting funds and weapons into the country, I'm, I'm sure at some point they believe Assad will have to give way. So... So I think it's just going to be an escalation of what we've see, been seeing uh, so far. But uh, but again, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think definitely the strategy is to escalate the violence there. And specifically, remember that it is it is Assad who is really up against the clock. Theoretically, these these terrorists, these these death squads, these other foreign infiltrators, they they really have no time limit. I mean, they can continue a destabilization campaign indefinitely so long as the material support remains, whereas Assad is becoming increasingly more isolated internationally. Um, one example that I think is, uh, is important for us to look at is Turkey, because Turkey is really playing the... Uh, um, how can we call this, a really uh, sort of a middling role here in the sense of, on the one hand, they have their own uh, designs for hegemony in the region, and that's why you see them taking a very anti-Assad position. On the other hand, they have a tremendous amount of investment to lose if they turn off the Russians. Specifically, the Russians have invested something like 25 billion U.S. dollars into a nuclear uh, nuclear reactor and a nuclear factory in Turkey, their largest overseas investment anywhere in the world. So I think that oftentimes the situation in Syria is not seen in that broader context of some of the... Um, some of the absolutely essential elements of it, particularly the, the, the question of Russian investment. Uh, the other thing that I would mention, too, that people want to remember about Syria is that they continually use rhetoric in the propaganda here in the West. I'll give you one example. If you look at any article that is talking about the situation in the city of Holmes, what is the, the, the word they always use in describing Holmes? They use the word flashpoint. Flashpoint. Flashpoint is the key word. And what you see then is that the flashpoint is really just uh, sort of um, hyperbole. Uh, you, really what we're talking about are those cities which have been infiltrated by foreign intelligence. We had reports even going back as far back as December, that the French and the British and possibly the Israelis were in the city of Holmes. They had set up command and control centers in that city and were using this uh, covert base of operations there to lead a destabilization around the country. Remember, in Libya, you had an armed rebellion emanating from a specific area of the country. In Syria... Benghazi. 
Yeah, in Syria, you do not have that. Instead, what you have are isolated pockets, and all of these pockets, or almost all of them, are along the borders. So you see the decidedly different uh, nature of the situation in Syria, one that is based on infiltration rather than on uh, uh, a native-born resistance movement. That's, I mean, that's exactly the point. And if you wanted an analogy, I mean, I guess it would be something like if there was some sort of base for international staging grounds against the U.S. and Canada, and they were basically funding infiltrators in Grand Forks, and every other news outlet in the world was calling Grand Forks a flashpoint for the American resistance or whatever. I mean, it's really the, the type of analogy we're looking at here. And it is interesting how uh, so much of the reporting has, uh, to hitherto at least, focused on Homs. Although, interestingly, the latest, latest reports about the, uh, the violence ratcheting up again Monday, according to CNN, is uh, focusing on Idlib, which I have not heard uh, touted in the media before. But again, it's probably just an, another part of that uh, chain of insurrection that's being funded and funneled in th- across the border, as you, as you point out. Well, and what's interesting about that, too, is that each city uh, along the border has a uniquely different dynamic. So, for example, in the city of Idlib, up um, uh, closer to Turkey, that is where you see a lot of the battles going on with the Free Syrian Army, which is using these refugee camps over the border in Turkey as a base of infiltration and a safe haven, whereas it's it's certainly different in the city of Daraa over by Lebanon. It's different along the Iraqi border. So I think that um, we have to keep in mind that each each city along the border has a very different character, and that's also something that you never hear about in the Western media. The other the other aspect of this that I did want to mention is the uh, the broader regional context, because I think that um, oftentimes in the West we forget about the diversity of the region, particularly Syria, for example, which is a multi ethnic diverse nation. Now. Uh, uh, Syria falls in this crescent that we could call a Shiite crescent, right? So Syria, along with Lebanon, you have a Shiite majority in Iraq and then the Shiite nation of Iran. So one can see a crescent stretching from Tehran across through Baghdad up into Damascus and over to Beirut. And that is the, that is the Shiite uh, crescent or this arc of Shiite uh, power that the United States and the Western imperialists want to break. And the way they're going to break that is by turning loose their Sunni jihadists against the Shiite uh, majorities. Exactly right. And I think this kind of gets to the heart of the matter, because the question, once we break through the, the conditioning that we've been placed under, that this is all about humanitarian grounds, and suddenly NATO and the U.S. care so much about the people of Syria and uh, that they want to drop bombs on them. Once we break through that conditioning and, and see that, that there's obviously an agenda going on, the question becomes, what is that agenda? And I think you're, you're starting to hit on it there, but perhaps we can flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the express objective for the United States is, of course, the isolation of Iran. Iran is the big, the big target for the U.S., but it's certainly not all about Iran. We have, uh, we have a situation in Iraq where the Shiite majority Maliki government is, is being demonized literally every day. Just pick up any headline related to Iraq. You'll see the demonization of Maliki. You ask yourself the question, why? Well, that's because a Maliki is a Shiite leading a Shiite majority who is warm uh, with Ahmadinejad, and also because uh, in 
Iraq, what you have is a nation that was not left a U.S. puppet state. The United States, when they pulled out of Iraq, wanted to leave a puppet state. They wanted to leave their man, Alawi, in power. They couldn't get it, they couldn't get it to happen. And so now they're left with an Iraq that votes against the Arab League resolutions on Syria, votes against sanctions on Iran, and pretty much does not follow the, the, the U.S. dominated narrative. And this is becoming a tremendous problem for them. Of course, we know what's happening in Syria, and then the, the, the dimensions in Lebanon are, are complex because they involve, they involve the, uh, the Hezbollah organization plus the government in Beirut. So what we see then is that the United States and the Western imperial powers are destabilizing the entire region and attempting to to foment an ethnic and sectarian conflict, in so doing, being able to continue to dominate the region and prevent Russia and China from really getting a foothold there in the Middle East. Unfortunately, I, th I agree completely with that assessment. It's rather grim, but it is nonetheless accurate. And divide and conquer, divide and conquer is always the grand imperial strategy, and I think that's exactly what's happening right here. So on that note, let's take another short break, and after the break, we'll be back with Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com here on Corbett Report Radio. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Here we are on this Monday night, and we're talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com about the many things that are taking place in many different parts of this global chessboard that uh, Brzezinski and the others like to think they are puppeteering. And there is so much on the plate tonight. But, Eric, let's take a moment to step back from the conversation and the, the headlines and talk a little bit about Stop Imperialism itself. Uh, that in itself is a, a pretty evocative title, and I'm sure everyone has their own ideas of what that might mean and how we might achieve something like that. But perhaps you can tell us, first of all, what is your take on what what actually defines this imperialist age that we're living through? Well, that's um, I mean, you're right to ask the question. It's a it's a complex one. The way that I the way that I envision sort of if I were to if I were to put together a mission statement or something like this about stop imperialism is that um, that the website and uh, my own philosophy is devoted to the idea that nations have the inherent right of um, of self-determination and independence that is to say they, they they cannot be subjugated to large imperial systems we saw in the British Empire of course for a couple hundred years we've seen empires going back from time immemorial the purpose of empire is to dominate and to exploit those that are weaker than you in the 21st century one would like to believe I would like to believe that we can live in a world that has evolved beyond the need for empires one in which you can have peaceful economic development that is mutually beneficial. Um, one of the aspects, and I didn't mention this in the previous segment, but I did want to hit at this, that really gets to the center of this whole idea is the essential dichotomy that people really need to understand about what's going on right now, particularly in the Arab world. And that dichotomy is really a, this conflict uh, between 
imperialism and the imperial system on the one hand and secular nationalism on the other hand. So when we think about secular nationalists, who immediately comes to mind? Well, it would be leaders like Gaddafi, leaders like Assad, or going back further, we could talk about Nasser in Egypt, or we could talk about Mossadegh in Iran, or any of these examples of secular nationalism. And what happens to all of these examples? They are gotten rid of by the imperialists, because secular nationalists Nationalism or nationalism in general is inherently opposed to imperialism. And so when we, uh, coming back to your question, when we take this into a 21st century context, what does this look like? Well, the United States being the, the superpower of the world, being this dominant empire that it is, the United States cannot use the tactics that were used by the British or the Ottomans or any other empire of history. Instead, they have to evolve. They, they have to change their tactics along with the times. So where 200 years ago, you might see ethnic cleansing directly carried out by the British in India. Today, things are done under the auspices of humanitarianism. They're done under the auspices of human rights, under the auspices of international law, or whatever pretext is being used by the imperialists that control the institutions that make those determinations in the first place. So really what we're talking about is a rigged game. Well, that, that certainly seems to be what we're dealing with in, in so many different respects. And as you indicate, I mean, it is such a, a large thing to try to define or to encompass, but certainly I think we see the broad outlines of the imperial agenda. But it does raise a question in my mind. Something that I'm wary of is the way that the, the entire framing of the, the paradigm as a, an imperial one, in a way sort of not necessarily limits our options, but almost backs us into an intellectual corner where we want to get into that, or we don't want to, but we're, we're sort of backed into that corner where the enemy of our enemy is our friend, and we start to think of things in terms of, for example, well, if we're against imperial aggression and outside influence in Syria, then we're for Assad, which of course isn't necessarily the case, and often isn't the case, but, uh, but it, it, it is kind of a fine line to walk between not wanting to get involved in these affairs and actively supporting the, uh, the people who are resisting it. Right, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. And I'm certainly no apologist for Assad. In fact, I feel that uh, oftentimes I'm, I'm quite critical of the Assad regime, particularly in the early days of this uh, conflict in Syria. I think uh, tremendous mistakes were made. However, um, the, the reason I framed it in that way is not because of Syria or any other uh, specific example or conflict in the world today, but rather so that we can at least have some sort of a, a mental construct for how these things are happening, because it is very easy to get uh, to fall into the trap of using uh, elites or New World Order or whatever term is your favorite term. But I think that oftentimes that, that becomes quite ambiguous. And in the case of Syria, we want to be very specific. This is precisely what I said. This is imperialist aggression. This is not, you know, uh, necessarily some small cabal in the Council on Foreign Relations or anything. We can pinpoint specifically the actors that are involved and what their motivations are. For example, um, I recently, uh, earlier today, I came across a headline uh, that the Qatari government, the Qatari government, which was so rabidly anti-Qaddafi, which was leading the charge to destroy the Qaddafi regime, well, it turns out less than six months later, the Qatari government buys 49% of Libya. Essentially, they purchased 
half of that country through the uh, through this lending institution. So what we then see is that this was absolutely an example of imperialist aggression, not just from the Western powers, but also from the smaller proxy states in the region, such as a Saudi Arabia or a Qatar or any or whichever country you want to talk about. Absolutely incredible, and I would very much like to get more into the latest in, in Libya and what's happened there since they fell off the face of the earth as far as the corporate-controlled media are concerned and the NATO operations wrapped up. I'd also like to get into Myanmar and Pakistan, Baluchistan, all of these uh, very important things and how that ties into the greater game between uh, NATO and the SCO. But on that note, let's take another short break. We'll be right back with Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to the program. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to our guest, Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com, and we're on a whirlwind tour of the world, basically, going around and seeing what is in the news and what is not in the news. If you'd like to get in with your comments or questions, 1-800-313-9443, or you can tweet me at Corbett Report, and I will endeavor to get to your comment or question on air. But in the meantime, let's go back to Eric Dreitzer. And just before the break, we were talking about uh, the, uh, the Libyan situation, which, as I was saying, was is basically completely disappeared off the corporate uh, media radar for obvious reasons, because that narrative is no longer unfolding in a PR-friendly way for the American empire. But uh, one story that I found particularly interesting coming out last week about a Libyan oil probe, which is underway into contracts that were that had been sealed under the Gaddafi government, that uh, the, uh, the NTC, the erstwhile government of uh, Libya, although I put that word government in quotation marks because of its utter inefficacy, but, uh, but they are apparently investigating some of these contracts and may, may end up overturning some of them, including with some pretty big power players like Total and Eni. But, uh, but Eric, what else is happening in Libya? What's really taking place there now since uh, they've really disappeared off the corporate radar? Well, um, the one that I mentioned before we went to break was the headline was Qatar National Bank buys 49% stake in private Libyan lender. Now, this private Libyan lender was a bank that had originally been established in the mid-90s by Gaddafi, but this is a tremendously powerful institution. So really what we see then is Qatar, this um, this incredibly aggressive, small uh, nation in the Gulf, which has been the center and crossroads of the, the British Empire going back at least a 100 years, the, the seat of Al Jazeera, uh, Qatar is now the major player in Libyan finance. Aside from that, the other, I think, major thing that we see in Libya now is this autonomy movement in the eastern region of the country in the Benghazi uh, Cyrenaica region. Essentially what's happening is the movement is for independence away from western Libya. Now what we're then looking at is really uh, the, the Iraq scenario, the Iraq scenario of 2004, the idea of three separate nations no longer really being Libya. 
Now, that's, of course, a disastrous scenario for average people in Libya, but that's a dream scenario for the imperialists who can then continue to use Libya as a staging ground for destabilization campaigns going east into Egypt, going west into West Africa, what we see in Mali today, and all over the region. Now, uh, aside from that, the other real important thing that's happening in Libya is the constant fighting between the various militias. And in fact, now we're even seeing um, institutions, international organizations such as Human Rights Watch, which played such an insidious role in instigating what happened in Libya. But even Human Rights Watch is now coming out and condemning the NTC government and condemning the various militia leaders in the eastern part of Libya, particularly for their uh, systematic persecution of the Tawerga tribe and the other dark-skinned black Africans in the Fezzan province of Libya. So I, I think that the truth in Libya is really coming to the surface slowly, but as you uh, correctly pointed out, since it's disappeared from the headlines, it seems that nobody really cares. Well, to me, that's really the point of it. It's not even necessarily that organizations like Human Rights Watch are insidious in and of themselves. I think they just play a convenient role for the empire insofar as when they are talking about something that serves the empire's interests, we can raise uh, raise red alerts about it and get it on the front page of every newspaper and, and lead every uh, news broadcast with it. But when they're raising concerns about something that the uh, the empire is no longer interested in, it suddenly it doesn't matter, it, it disappears into the wind, there will be no outcry over the NT or the way they're supposedly running Libya right now, and it will just uh, absolutely uh, be as if it, a tree fell in the forest and no one was there to hear it. Yeah, and it's particularly convenient. It's particularly convenient that uh, the accusations that uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch made about Gaddafi and the soldiers supposedly using rape as a weapon and some of the other accusations that were hurled at Gaddafi, these were very quietly uh, uh, retracted statements. However, what they're saying about what's happening in Misrata is 100% true, and it's been documented by a variety of sources. The particular, uh, the particulars of it are somewhat uh, less relevant, but what matters here is that the Misrata Benghazi area is attempting to break away from the rest of Libya, and that's what we want to watch out for, because again, the, fraction, the, the fracturing of that country would again be a roadmap for what they would do in other parts of Africa and the Middle East. Well, let's move on to another flashpoint, a hotspot, if you will, uh, Balochistan, which is going through a period of great unrest, which all signs point to outside attempts at destabilization. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So Balochistan is a very, very strategically important region. So this is the region of eastern Iran and western Pakistan. So it's on both sides of the border and actually a bit of southern Afghanistan as well. Now, the, the people of Balochistan, they have been to, to a large extent marginalized within Pakistan. So there are legitimate grievances that they have. However, what is actually happening? We have a destabilization campaign focused on Balochistan using a variety variety of, of tactics. So the first one is the terrorism card, which they always play. And here we want to we pay specific attention to the Baloch Liberation Front 
and the Baloch Liberation Army and Jundala. So the Baloch Liberation Front and Liberation Army, these are indigenous movements, um, centered some of the, uh, the Baloch Liberation Army in London with a guy named, uh, Braham Dag Bukti, B-U-G-T-I, who is the grandson of one of the original Baloch leaders. Uh, we also have this Jundala organization. Now, we also, we want to remember that they have been documented to be controlled by both the United States and the Israeli Mossad. And the Jundala organization is very specifically used to wage covert war against the Iranian government. They've been involved in a string of terrorist activities going all the way back at least a decade, if not longer. And um, so these three organizations are three among many that are involved in the destabilization campaign there. But what does that look like? You have targeted assassinations seemingly every day. You have these kidnappings and these disappearances. And in particular, what you have is, is seemingly indiscriminate murder, but it is not indiscriminate. Because what you're seeing is that it is targeting Shia Muslims in Balochistan. The Shia representing a very significant uh, minority inside of Pakistan. And so again, this is obviously uh, uh, geared towards destabilizing both Pakistan and Shiite Iran. And so we could see that Balochistan in that way is part of that, is part of that process. Now, we want to also step back and understand why Balochistan matters. So Balochistan is significant uh, partially because there's uh, unexplored oil fields and minerals, this we know, but it is also significant because of the Iran-Pakistan pipeline. This is a major uh, development project which is coming online very soon, and the U.S. is, of course, irate about an Iran-Pakistan pipeline because of the obvious implications that this could easily become an Iran-Pakistan-China pipeline. So Balochistan really could be seen as a linchpin of the Chinese strategy of having land-based energy access into the Indian Ocean Basin. And that's precisely what we see with the Chinese port of Gwadar, uh, which is also in Balochistan. So all of these, all of these uh, strategic necessities are aligning to, to show us that Balochistan must be destabilized by the Western imperialist powers if they're going to prevent the Chinese from swooping in and controlling that region. Uh, now, here in the United States, we had this House resolution passed by uh, the Republican Representative Rohrbacher of California. And this was a resolution in support of Baloch separatism. In other words, the right of self-determination, which they like to use. But really, again, this is, of course, to break apart Pakistan, to take a large chunk of Pakistan, break it off, break off a piece of Iran, create a greater Balochistan, and allow the United States to dominate it. Exactly right, and uh, people who are interested can go and read Dana Rohrbacher's own uh, op-ed in the Wa uh, Washington Post recently where he wrote about why I support Baluchistan, and he's uh, citing the U.S. State Department and Amnesty International talking about the violence and the extrajudicial killings and the human rights atrocities, and then in the fourth paragraph he just slips in, Baluchistan is Pakistan's largest province in area and lies in the south near Iran and Afghanistan. It's replete with natural resources and treated like a colonial possession. Its natural gas, gold, uranium, and copper are exploited for the benefit of the ruling elite in Islamabad. Islamabad. Meanwhile, the Luk Baluk people remain desperately poor. So once again, it's, uh, oh, of course, we have to rob from, uh, rob from the rich to give to the poor, and that's exactly how it's going to play out, and that's the type of narrative he's trying to assert there, but I think um, anyone with a 
ounce of geographical and geo geopolitical sense would know that there's something much much bigger to this. And sure, exactly as you point out, uh, the the Iran Pakistan proposed pipeline will not only run directly through Balochistan, but actually intersects with that planned logistical corridor that China's planning to put in, but from the port of Gwadar, running all the way up to uh, Xinjiang province, uh, directly through Balochistan. So. I think absolutely no uh, no surprise here in, as to what the greater game is all about. Yeah, and in, and in fact, it, it, anybody who doubts it, because it's interesting, I'll oftentimes come, in, come into contact with people who say, well, now how do you know that uh, the United States and Israel are manipulating these groups? Well, I could point you directly to the mainstream article which said that the CIA and the Mossad are coming into conflict with each other over the recruiting of Jundala operatives. We know, we remember back in the Bush administration that they were ready to, uh, to overtly fund the Jundala organization against the Iranian government. Well, this is just one aspect of a much larger destabilization campaign. It's something which is, uh, unfortunately at the moment, almost completely under the radar. Unfortunately so. So let's tie this into the bigger, bigger picture, because as you indicate, obviously this has a lot to do with the Iran-Pakistan pipeline, which was originally proposed to be an Iran-Pakistan-India pipeline, and although India took itself out of that picture, uh, at least nominally, because of uh, U.S. pressure, they've never completely taken themselves out of the, the off the page on that one, and they've never definitively said that they, there won't be an, an Indian endpoint to that pipeline, which of course would be uh, nightmarish for the U.S., which has been pushing its own alternative to that pipeline, which in itself is sort of dead on arrival. But uh, but this ties into the pipeline politics of the region and how this really nexuses into the, uh, the BRICS uh, countries and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and uh, the real scramble for resources and, and alliances that are taking place right now. And you did an excellent job in the most recent edition of the Stop Imperialism podcast talking about how Pakistan, for example, and, and India and their uh, their warming relations is really, uh, I guess, worrying from the viewpoint of the NATO imperial powers. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, even before I mentioned that, something that you just mentioned about India in relation to Iran, although India is not directly involved in the Iran-Pakistan pipeline, I have an article in front of me, and this is going to be on the, uh, uh, the episode of Stop Imperialism, which will be available tomorrow morning. Um, the headline is, India replaces China as Iran's top oil client. So India is far surpassed China in the amount of Iranian oil that they're importing. Of course, India is trying to preempt the United States sanctions against India for importing the Indian, uh, the Iranian oil. Now, uh, looking at it from a, from a broader perspective, though, the pipeline, the pipeline issue with regard to India, India is an integral part of the TAPI pipeline. This is the TAPI, the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline. Now, this pipeline project is, is absolutely crucial to know because this is the centerpiece of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization pipeline strategy in Central Asia and in the Caspian region. You have the TAPI and the Iran-Pakistan. That really represents the Shanghai Cooperation Organization locus of power. On the other hand, on the Western uh, powers, you have the Nabucco project and the Trans-Caspian project and the Trans-Anatolian project and a couple of others all being sort of lumped together as what they call the Southern Corridor. Now, the Southern Corridor is designed specifically to subvert Russian monopoly of gas supplies into Southern and Eastern Europe. 
So what we see then is that Central Asia is really just the the source of the of the exports, but this is really a, a geopolitical proxy war between the SCO and U.S. NATO over the ability to control the flow of gas into Europe, which is a, a multi-billion dollar a year industry. It's so important to understand the pipeline politics and, and how these uh, different players are, are really countering each other's strategies with their own proposed pipelines. And it's also extremely interesting to see that, uh, that Russia clearly has, has a, a, a clear lead on the competition here with North Stream and South Stream really uh, blowing away the competition so far. And Nabucco is uh, just an, it looks like a, a nightmare, really, a logistical nightmare. It's really uh, unclear how uh, the U.S. and NATO forces will actually be able to enforce their, their pipelines through anything other than military conquest of the region. Well, what we're, what we're seeing now is the, I guess it's the realization from the Western powers that they're not going to be able to entirely subvert the Russians and the Russian control of the gas industry. So instead, what they're doing is they're trying to work with the Russians as much as possible. And what we have, I have a, uh, a headline, uh, Exxon and Rosneft. Uh, the Russian oil state oil company, Exxon and Rosneft just signed a huge deal for mutually beneficial development. The uh, Rosneft is going to get a foothold in North America, and they're going to get some of the expertise from Exxon's engineers, particularly expertise on how to extract what they call tight oil, meaning it's difficult to extract oil. On the flip side, Exxon will have Russian guarantees of access to Arctic oil field exploration, something that is really kind of the cutting edge of the oil and gas industry, exploration in the Arctic with guarantees from the Putin government. Now, that's important because we remember that the Putin government is not shy about kicking out foreign oil companies, just ask the CEO of BP. Hmm. Exactly right. All right, well, uh, wrapping up this part of the discussion then, uh, just playing out from here, what do you think is going to be the next, uh, the next point of conflict for, for this Shanghai Cooperation Organization and NATO? Do you, do you see this going military anytime in the coming years, or do you think this is going to remain sort of a resource proxy struggle? Well, I think that the question of, um, of, uh, really what you're asking, for that to go military, we're really talking about World War III at that point, and, um, do I see the prospects of World War III? I think that uh, the the world economic depression would have to get far more uh, far more disastrous for something like that to happen. Although we know from history, just uh, seventy five years ago, that that situation can happen uh, almost literally overnight. So, uh, do I think that it's do I think that it's immediately going to happen? No, I don't. I think that uh, there's way too much at stake for both the Western powers and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Moreover, the SCO is certainly not ready to compete with the United States militarily. So, nor does nor does anybody want to see that outcome. All right. On that note, let's let's wait there for just a second. Uh, we're going to come back with Eric Dreitzer, StopImperialism.com, to wrap up tonight's conversation and talk about some other areas of the globe. So once again, if you haven't checked out Stop Imperialism, I suggest you do so. It's a great resource. And on that note, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. Welcome 
back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we've been talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com, which not only has a very good and very informative podcast, but also a very nice musical selection, I must say. A lot of good uh, apropos music as the interludes. Not that that's the important part, but it doesn't hurt. So, uh, Eric, in the final few minutes here, we just have a couple of minutes left. Let's uh, turn to another section of the globe. I haven't been following the developments in Myanmar very closely, but I understand there's been some really incredible changes taking place there over the past year, and I would imagine that we haven't been getting the full story from the establishment media. So tell us about uh, what you've been covering in terms of Myanmar. Sure. Well, uh, what we hear in the Western media has to do with the democratization process that's going on in, Bur- in uh, I almost said Burma. That's the imperialist name for Myanmar. Um, now, what's what's actually happening in Myanmar, you have this Aung San Suu Kyi, right, this Nobel Peace Prize winner who really, one, we could sort of see her as a representation of the National Endowment for Democracy. She's best buddies with uh, Hillary Clinton. So I think that tells us all we need to know about what, what exactly her political affiliations are. However, coming down to what's really happening on the ground there, there's two important Chinese projects that are going on. The first is what's called the Myatsone Dam. That's M-Y-I-T-S-O-N-E, the Myatsone Dam Project. This is a major, major dam project which is worth billions of dollars for the Chinese. This is a hydroelectric dam which would provide electricity for both the Chinese in western China as well as for the people in Myanmar. Now, that is on hold. The the government has succumbed to Western pressure, putting that on hold, and the Chinese are pushing them to get it back on track. The other one is a, a, a twin a twin pipeline oil and gas project. So it's oil on one side, gas on the other side, and this is running from the Indian Ocean coast of Myanmar all the way across the country, up through the Kachin province and into Yunnan province of western China. Now, of course, we know that this is of absolutely uh, sort of uh, essential for the Chinese because it allows them to have access to oil and gas in the Indian Ocean without being forced through the Straits of Malacca, that infamous choke point controlled by the United States and the British for oh so many years now. So those are the two major projects that are happening there. However, we also have the ties involved in a dam project and a port project in Dawei. The Chinese are involved in a, in, in a variety of projects there. Now, what we see on the ground is a Kachin independence movement. This is a destabilization movement, a guerrilla fighting organization on the border between Myanmar and China. And they're the ones who I think are being used especially to, to try to derail this pipeline project. So if you look at the headlines coming out of Myanmar, it's constantly about Kachin, the Kachin independence movement. So if you want to focus on a destabilization campaign inside of Myanmar, I would point your attention to the Kachin rebels vis-a-vis this oil and gas pipeline going into China. Extremely interesting stuff, but we're running out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. But before we go, Eric, tell people what's coming up in the next edition of your podcast. Okay, well, um, so there is an episode that will be posted as of tonight. Uh, We're going to be focusing on some of the issues we talked about here tonight, as well as what's going on in West Africa and uh, in Russia especially. We see major economic developments in Russia. 
Also, I was able to do an interview about a week and a half ago with Joshua Faust. I would ask people to check that out on StopImperialism.com. And uh, James, I want to thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Well, thank you. Uh, a veritable fount of information there. So I hope everyone got that data download okay. And if not, of course, you can always go in the archives and re-listen at your heart's content. Of course, you can also go to StopImperialism.com. So Eric Greitzer, thank you for your time. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for your time and your efforts and energy and your support. As always, it's all greatly appreciated. So I'm looking forward to talking to you all again 23 hours from now. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.